Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Hello. Welcome to the show. And we have a very powerful show today. I want to first send a shout-out to my dear, wonderful friend, Yoshiko Dart, such a great disability leader internationally. Sending you my best, Yoshiko. And I want to thank our major sponsor, our lead sponsor, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield, for sponsoring this show and my other sponsors, Covestro and AudioEye. You know, I am, as you all know, a woman living with epilepsy. And for those of you that hear the show uh, in other parts of the world, I know in many of those countries there is great stigma with epilepsy, so this is really an important show for you to hear. And thank you very much for following this show in Japan and Sweden and all these other countries. Um, that is just wonderful. But it is personal to me. It's very personal to me. As a woman living with epilepsy, even today, I am unusual in that everywhere I go, you know, I was the former chair of the board of the National Epilepsy Foundation. I was the national chair of the American Association of People with Disabilities. I am vice chair of the Epilepsy Foundation of Western and Central PA. Um, in addition to this radio show, you all know that I founded 22 years ago my company, Bender Consulting Services, focusing on the competitive employment of people with disabilities. And I maintain the reason we have the highest unemployment of any group in America relates to one thing, and that one thing is stigma. That's why the book of poems that I read by Molly McCauley Brown had such an impact on me. You're probably going to get that when I tell you the name is the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. Really is just an anthology of the horrors people endure, people that are living with epilepsy. And it is certainly my honor to welcome to the show today the author, Molly McCauley-Brown. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Joyce. I'm thrilled to be here. And Molly, before we get going, I did not mention this, but didn't this book win an award? Um, well, it won what's called the Lexi Renitsky First Book Prize, um, which a press uh, called Persia Books runs out of New York, and it's the it's an award that where they pick one collection of poems every year to to publish, and so this won the award in 2016. Well, congratulations, and I'm so glad it did, because such a powerful story. And that's really where I'd like to begin, um, Molly. I know you also live with a disability, but not epilepsy. So my question is, how the heck did this come about? You know, what, what made you write this? What was the reason? Well, so... Uh the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded was a real place um, that in the mid and early 1900s became one of the kind of major hubs of the American eugenics movement. And so what that means is that from about 1920 to about 1955, um, thousands and thousands of people with uh, mental and physical disabilities of all kinds, and some who had neither but were deeply impoverished and so assumed to be intellectually disabled, uh, were sterilized there. Largely, not only without their consent, but often without their knowledge. They were told that they were being given appendectomies uh, and then were sterilized instead. I grew up about 20 miles from the grounds of this hospital, um, and because I was a person with a disability, it was always of interest to me. And then after I finished college and was sort of thinking about my life as an artist and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to write, I just couldn't get this place out of my head. And so this book of poems, which is in the fictional voices of imagined patients and staff in the colony in the 1930s, uh, was born out of, that, out of that preoccupation and out of the sense that I'd grown up, uh, you know, right next to this place and not all that many years removed from, from that history. 
Right. And, you know, I'm glad that when you mentioned this eugenics uh, movement, my friend Edwin Black, also an author, and his book was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, War Against the Weak, um, wrote about this history and how it is connected with the Holocaust. And I think so many people would be surprised when they think of eugenics and they think of the horrible things you just discussed. They do think of Nazi Germany. You know, they do think of how Hitler viewed people with disabilities, which was, of course, including them in this terrible Holocaust, meaning extermination of, you know, six million Jews in the country, included a vast amount of people with disabilities. What people don't realize is there was this eugenics movement right here in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know, that is like a terrible dark secret, but it's a reality. Um, so I knew very well when I read this book uh, what you were talking about. Um, I always say, wow. If I lived during that time, I too could have lived in that institution. Um, and you just answered my question, but I guess you living with a disability, that had an impact on you writing the book. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, I felt very emotionally close to this material and, uh, you know, and very close to the, the literal geographical space in which it had taken place. And I think that combination um, is absolutely what led to me to me writing the, the poems and, and the book. I know there was the uh, Supreme Court case that, and I think you mentioned it in your book, uh, where the ruling came down on the feeble-minded. Could you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so if anyone knows about the Virginia State Colony, they usually know about it as the site of Buck v. Bell, which was the famous 1927 Supreme Court case that upheld Virginia sterilization laws and essentially made eugenic sterilization legal uh, on people with disabilities. Um, so it provided the kind of legal precedent to allow that to happen on a mass scale. Um, and you mentioned the, the Nazis and, and us thinking about eugenics largely in uh, connection with the Holocaust, but what most people don't know is that not only was it going on in America, but in fact it was American eugenics that um, the Nazis used as a blueprint uh, for the concentration camps and for the campaign that Hitler um, carried out there. Yeah, I know. I know that is true and right. I'm sure a small percentage of people in America know that, but they did uh, get that information from us, and you know, then sadly, tragically, we we know we came from that. But the whole view was that certain groups of people uh, were inferior, and it has always amazed me that that ruling went down by the Supreme Court judge during that time. Um, and, you know, that was just horrifying, absolutely horrifying. I'm not sure. Was that all over Wendell Holmes? I'm trying to think who that was. Indeed, yeah, it was. Um, and the famous and the famous quote that that came from one of the um, the arguing attorneys was, three generations of imbeciles are enough," um, and that became the kind of rallying cry of the American eugenics movement. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. It, that is that is so horrible. I remember how shocked I was because, like, I had a different view of Oliver Wendell Holmes, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this when mm -hmm. I read that. But, you know, as you well know, sadly, uh, it is true. So uh, let's talk about this colony. My first question is, how the heck were people determined to be sent to this facility. How did that happen? You know, it was a real, it was a real combination of factors. Um, sometimes children were given up there by their families um, because they either didn't want to care for them, didn't want to, to be responsible for their medical care and well-being, or because they didn't have the financial resources to care for them. I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, all of these issues are really intersectional. So when we talk about what happened at the colony, we're not just talking about disability. We're talking about poverty, too. Um, and often people were, were lifted out of, out of their homes, out of their communities, precisely because they were impoverished or because they were, their medical needs could not be met in the spaces where they were living. Um, and they, 
were sent to this hospital because they needed, their families felt as if they needed to be cared for or because they were considered kind of worthless, useless, and, and were, were given up to the state so as not to be a drain um, on, on resources. That is a very important point you just mentioned about poverty. You know, I have a friend that used to say all the time, disability and poverty go hand in hand, but these, in fact, included people in poverty that did not have disabilities. But it's that whole thinking you talked about of the imbecile or the thinking of, well, why are you in poverty or what would cause you to be in poverty? And, um, you know, Wow. I, I mentioned before about stigma and people with mental health issues and epilepsy have, and intellectual disabilities, have the absolute hardest time gaining employment of almost any group of people with disabilities. Absolutely. My question to you is, what do you think, why is that? Like, what is that stigma? Why would they put people with these disabilities in that, in that hospital or colony? Well, I, I mean, I think, it, I think it had to do, I think it arises out of what most stigma arises out of at its root, which is a question of fear, right? Um, in the, the, at the period of time in the 1930s when sterilizations were at their height, um, we were still learning about how genetics worked. We were still learning about um, how, you know, various, the, the sort of effects that various disabilities had on the, the brain and on the body. Um, we were still learning about the connection between physical disability and the brain, between epilepsy and other kinds of neurological function, all those kinds of things. And I think people were very afraid. Um, they didn't know how these traits got passed on. They didn't know what they meant about um, people's cognitive capacities, emotional capacities. Um, and in fact, they really believed that, it, that um, a lot of these kinds of disabilities uh, rendered people sort of incapable of being fully human, right? Um, and I think that that combination, that fear of, is this going to happen to me? Is this going to happen to my family? Is this going to take over somehow? Uh, are we going to, you know, are we creating, a, I mean, very literally, like generations of, of weak or defective people? Defective is the term that was used um, when they talked about who they sterilized. I think that was a great anxiety. And I think in combination with um, the sort of anxiety about economic resources that came to a head during the Great Depression, that was a kind of poisonous combination, right? There isn't enough in the world. We can't be wasting it on these people who are less than. Interesting, because the debate is going on right now about cutting uh, SSDI, and it's that same thinking that you just talked about a moment ago. I do believe that it is fear, and I unfortunately also believe it is shame, you know, yeah. not wanting someone like that. For example, although I do not have a convulsion when I have a seizure, as you well know, uh, many people do, or they have a complex partial seizure such as myself or an absence seizure, all of those, though. People do not like that. They don't like to see that. As you said, it is fear, but it is also this, do I want my customers to see this? Do I want Absolutely. to see Absolutely. It? It's literally, it is literally uncomfortable for people to look at, right? And I think that extends to all kinds of severe physical disabilities as well, right? The ways in which people's, uh, you know, bodies look sort of, quote unquote, other than normal, right? Or contorted in ways that are other than normal or ways in which they behave in ways that are other than normal, and I'm making air quotes here that you can't see, um, is I think there's a great sense of, of just like deep, deep, deep discomfort and shame around that, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, we are so excited today to have Molly McCauley Brown on the show today, uh, author of The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, which is a book of poetry, and I just want to tell you it is something you should buy. It really makes a statement. We're going to take a break, and then we'll be right back with Molly. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high test line of service. For more information, please visit www.vendorconsult.com. Hi, I'm Rick Harrison from Podstars. I'm here to talk to you about the Epilepsy Foundation. I had bad seizures until I was a teenager. I thought I wouldn't have a chance to grow up, but I dared to think differently. My epilepsy taught me to be a fighter. When I said I wanted to make a TV series about my pawn shop, people thought I was nuts. But I dared to defy the odds, and Pawn Stars was born. If you have epilepsy, dare to live your fullest potential. The Epilepsy Foundation will help you dare. Visit epilepsy.com. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. If you have a question or comment, call in toll free at 1-866-472-5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We have as our guest today Molly McCauley Brown with her book of poetry, The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. And when we were at break, I did forget to mention this, but this book was given a very good review by the New York Times. So, and you know what? That's hard to get. So that's why I want to make sure you talk about this book to everyone. And I wanted to ask you, how do people purchase this book? So there are all kinds of ways that you can do that. The, the best way for writers and for the kind of world of uh, booksellers and bookstores is that if you have a local bookstore, um, go in and see if they stock it or ask them to order it. That is the kind of best possible way uh, to, to get a hold of a book in a way that's going to benefit uh, writers and artists and booksellers uh, in the most direct way. And it also benefits your local community, right, if you're ordering from a local bookstore. You can also purchase it online um, from any of the sort of various retailers there. Uh, Persia's website, uh, which is perseabooks.com, has a, has a way to order by mail if you want to do that. So there are a whole host of, of ways to do it. Interesting. Explain to our listeners, why did you say it's best for authors when it's at a local bookstore? Sure. I mean, if you're ordering through a big online retailer, right, think about how many degrees removed you are from, from the, the writer, right, and from the, peop- and from the publishers and from the people who are producing um, those works. You know, retailers like Amazon uh, buy books at a discount. They buy them in bulk and they distribute them at, at discounted prices and kind of far away from the people who produce them as this big conglomerate. And if they have a monopoly on the market, then they can you know, really radically change, actually just change the way that we produce literature and the voices that get valued and they can, you know, essentially sell what sells and pay to produce what sells. But if you're buying from smaller outlets, from publishers, from local bookstores, um, from things like that, then you are allowing um, them to, to, to kind of value artists and to and be in more direct communication with the people who are producing the work. Um, and think more critically about the kinds of voices that they're, they are promoting, and you're giving publishers the ability to then publish more diverse kinds of, of voices and, um, and, not, and not sort of be uh, at the mercy of a, big, of a big conglomerate or the bestseller market. And, you know, another, another great thing would be to get it in the library. 
Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Go to your, always support your local library. Um, and, and, and if they don't have a book that you love, go in and go in and ask them to order a copy. That's great. It's great for libraries and it's great for, it's great for writers. So. Um, I wanted to talk for a moment, getting back to what, what you said. And we talked about what, uh, with Nazi Germany, so many people did not know this was all going on. Uh, and you talked in the poetry about forced sterilization. I'm going to have a quote that you had in there in one of your poems. More people touch you in a single day than have touched you in all of the hours of the last dry year. Um, I assume that means even with the horrors of sterilization, people were so lonely that any contact was better than nothing. Um, so I wanted you to talk about two things. First, explain this forced sterilization um, and how often that happened, and then the part about loneliness. Um, yeah, so forced sterilization was happening really regularly in Virginia from about um, 1920 through the mid-1950s. Uh, over 7,000 people, some estimates put it closer to 10,000, um, were sterilized in Virginia. So this was happening on a large scale and, uh, and very regularly. And it was happening uh, particularly rapidly in the kind of early uh, to late 1930s, uh, which was the kind of height of the sterilization movement, and it's when the book is set. Um, now, I should say it's important to me to clarify that um, while these, these poems are based on a real place and on real historical events and, and sterilization was a thing that happened, um, they're, they're all imaginations, right? They're not, no, none of the patient voices in this book are, are real historical patients. Um, and the whole thing is kind of my imagination based on a good deal of research, but, but ultimately my imagination of this place and of the kind of potential emotional landscape, um, that, that all of these people were inhabiting. Um, so, you know, I make no claims to be certain of what it would have been like for any one person uh, emotionally or physically to be a patient at the colony. But I did try to imagine uh, what it would have been like to be in a place where your, the sort of whole essence of your humanity was in doubt, um, where you spent much of your time, most of your time shut away. Uh, sometimes patients were hired out to work if they were physically able, but otherwise they uh, mostly just stayed shut in the dormitory of the colony um, or one of its other sort of small spaces. And I think it was uh, quite a lonely time to be in the midst of a place where where your, your, whole, your whole humanity, your whole value as a person, your whole inner life, uh, all of that was in doubt, and where you didn't have access to familial affection, to romantic affection, to any of those kinds of things. And so, yes, I can imagine that, that the act of human touch, even uh, in, in service of doing this great violence of, of sexually sterilizing someone, would be a strange kind of comfort, a strange kind of pleasure, and how, how terrible is that, that there would have been a population of people where there would have even been the risk of that, that that kind of violence could have been the only tenderness they knew. Yes, what I, what, what I compare this to, as, as you know, there are many books, plays, movies um, that are fictional characters, but based on a historic event. And that's really what your uh, book of poetry is. Uh, although these people were not real, and a lot of this was envisioned by you when you wrote this uh, brilliant book of poems, it is based on history. There really is this colony. There really was that Oliver Wendell Holmes case. It, there really was uh, not only eugenics, but eugenics copied in Germany by Hitler. So all of this happened, but oh, you, used, you used your imagination to, to really bring it to life. That, that's how I view it. Um, when I said that, you know, I am sure some of these people were in solitary confinement or, or, or even just in a cell or a place where they had little to no contact with anyone other than possibly the orderlies or whoever, whatever you want to call the people, you know, in charge there. And 
You know, and th- you know, I was thinking about imagine having epilepsy or a psychiatric disability and not having medication. This would mean with epilepsy you have ongoing seizures. Mm-hmm. which, like me, when I had a seizure at a movie theater and I hit the floor so hard I fractured my skull and ended up having brain surgery. Mm. Think how horrifying that would be. Um, and, you know, the fact that you were able to bring this to light through your poetry is just absolutely um, brilliant. I wanted to ask you, um, how long did this take for you to write this? So there, there are two answers to that question, both of which are equally true in different kinds of ways. Um, I started thinking about this project about four years ago now. And so in that sense, it's been a kind of long, multi-year thing. Um, and it, you know, it involved a lot of research. It involved a lot of time spent actually walking around the grounds of this institution. Um, and that it involved the, the time of actually writing and then revising the poems, both sort of before I submitted the book for publication and then after in um, combination with my editor. Um, So the whole process of taking the book from kind of my first imagining of it to it now being a bound thing out there in the world uh, was about four years long. But I wrote the first draft of the book after I'd kind of done the research and sat down to write the poems. I wrote the first draft of these poems really actually very, very quickly over the course of about three and a half months. Um, It was a kind of uh, almost sort of claustrophobic experience where I was writing sometimes two or three poems a day. It was as if once I had sort of entered the imaginary space of this place and and the historical space of this place, uh, I couldn't exactly come out again. And so the whole book got drafted very, very quickly during a time when I I wasn't doing much else beyond... uh, working on these poems. Yes, I would think this would be um, akin to a great friend of mine uh, is Karen Slaughter, the multi-million publisher in 40 countries of crime thrillers. And I know that when she creates a character, to her this person is a person. And she thinks about that person or she feels sorry for that person um, or like an actor or actress when they play a role and it sort of becomes them. I'm sure that's probably what it was like to you that, you know, that envisioning this so much was similar to being there. Yeah, absolutely. It felt it felt very immersive and very real. And I did start to feel um, it sounds a little hokey to say, but I did start to feel kind of over the course of, of working on these poems uh, less like I was making intentional decisions and more like I was kind of uh, filtering through the voices of these people who were who were coming alive uh, for me over the you know over the course of working on the book. So yeah, it was it was a it was a deeply uh, deeply immersive experience in that way. Well, I want to tell you again, everyone, before we go to break, uh, go to your local bookstore, ask if they have the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded by Molly McCauley Brown. If they don't, have them order it or go online um, through Amazon, or what is the name? Is it Perseus, the name of the company? Perseus Books is the name of my publisher. Yeah, you can look through their website. Yeah, and get it, but you need to get it. That's the key thing. You need to get it. It's very powerful, very well written. You'll be giving it to someone else. I can tell you that right now. But right now we're going to break. You've been listening to Molly McCauley Brown, an author, poet, and just really making a statement for all of us living with disabilities. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back with Molly. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, I'm Rick Harrison from Pawstars. I'm here to talk to you about the Epilepsy Foundation. 
I had bad seizures until I was a teenager. I thought I wouldn't have a chance to grow up, but I dared to think differently. My epilepsy taught me to be a fighter. When I said I wanted to make a TV series about my pawn shop, people thought I was nuts. But I dared to defy the odds, and Pawn Stars was born. If you have epilepsy, dare to live your fullest potential. The Epilepsy Foundation will help you dare. Visit epilepsy.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We have been talking to Molly McCauley-Brown, the poet and author of The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, and what a book this is. One of the things you created through your own mind, but based on history, um, is The Blind Room. That's what you call it, The Blind Room. Could you talk about that for our listeners yeah, so the blind room, um, the, the book itself is divided into sections that are named after the kinds of rooms and spaces uh, in the colony. And the blind room is actually a historical term. It was the term that was used in the colony um, at the time that these poems are set for essentially solitary confinement. Um, and so it was the space that uh, patients, whom it's worth saying they called inmates um, at the colony, were put um, sometimes as punishment, sometimes to get them out of the way for a whole kind of variety of reasons. Um, and, and it was, I mean, literally a kind of underground, um, dark, solitary confinement space. And it was called the blind room because the idea was that it was so dark that you could not see. Now, and you know, it's bad enough you've been put there. But, you know, even today... In prisons, people that are in solitary confinement, you know, just either when they try to commit, try to die by suicide there, do sometimes after, but develop incredible issues, horrible post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, that's just a terrible thing to go through. Imagine having a mental health issue, or any of these disabilities and being put in that situation. You know, every time Absolutely. I think about this, I think, how could people be so terrible to do this to people? Um, and if I'm right, uh, this included, as you said, various disabilities, including intellectual disabilities, which would be people living with Down syndrome. And I'm going to guess, if I, uh, in history as I recall, that... When people were born with this type of disability, the doctor just said they need to go to an institution. Um, and, and that wasn't, by the way, that long ago still going on. And even today, some people say they can't work. You know, you'll have to have them in community living or figure out a way to take care of them. I mean, that still goes on today. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Yeah, and I didn't do, um, you know, at the time that the, the poems are set, um, we, a lot of the, the, you know, the medical terminology that we have for particular types of disabilities, particular kinds of genetic variation, um, all of those kinds of things didn't exist, and people were classified under these kind of big umbrella terms. They were called idiotic. They were called imbecile. They were called feeble-minded. These, these are terms now that we think of kind of only as pejorative uh, kind of slurs, but at the time, they were um, loaded with all that context, but they were the they were the medical terms of the time. They were the, the that was the terminology that appeared on medical orders for sterilization in the colony. How about you, Molly? 
with your own disability, um, how did you deal with that? You know, as a child in school through today, did do you feel people looked at you differently because of your disability? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I think again, any time that you um, are you know, are somebody who who appears or interacts in the world in a way that is that is um, again other than other than kind of the norm. Um, that is, you know, something that you struggle with, and it's something that I struggled with as a child, and and still continue to struggle with as an adult. You know, people who assume um, all kinds of things about my intelligence in the world, about my capability, about my maturity, about my uh, sexuality, about my my sort of whole personhood, they make assumptions based on the fact that I use a wheelchair to get around. Um, but I was really lucky. You know, I had wonderful parents and largely fabulous educators, and, and my life was full of people who uh, not only believed that I, you know, was as capable as, as any able-bodied child, but, but who believed, in fact, that I could, you know, that I could go on and, and do... Um, you know, important and, and contributing things in the world and who made that clear to me and made that expectation clear to me every day. And that was a wonderful um, sort of counteracting force to, to other people in the world, other forces in the world that, that had, a, had a very different vision for what my life might look like. And, and I feel very lucky about that. And is that what your own belief in yourself, your own independence, is that what has helped you the most? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think I think it is a kind of uh, it's an indescribable gift to have uh, to have parents, to have a community, to have to have teachers, to have people in your life who who um, you know who believe that you are are uh, you know fully capable not just of of accomplishing things but of but of contributing to the world in a, in a meaningful way. You know, um, and that that has been and and was a huge a huge source of. Uh, I mean, I think it's made, it's made all the difference, you know. And, you know, when we were saying about the way people uh, view you or look at you, I'm going to tell you, it's different with your family and friends than it is with a stranger. Oh, or absolutely. When you're out, you know, like when you're out in public or wherever you are, it's yep. different. Yeah, well, absolutely. This book is going to have a huge impact on people. Well, what do you hope it does? What, what do you hope is the result? Oh, you know, I mean, I think it's so, it's so funny because I think when you put out a book of poems, uh, you know, I was primarily thinking of it as a work of art, and I think I, I do still primarily think of it as a work of art. And so on that level, I just, I hope that it, I hope that it moves people. I hope that it interests them. I hope that they, uh, yeah, I hope that they're moved by it. But then I hope that as a, as a text about about the sort of history of disability in this country, um, I hope that it that it it opens up a, a broader conversation about American eugenics, about the the way that we treated and treat people with disability in this country, about institutionalization of all kinds in America, and about about what the forces are that allow us to decide that a whole population of people is essentially subhuman, because that is certainly still a conversation that we need to be having across all kinds of demographics today. Yes, and I'm going to tell you, I know that, as you said, it is a work of, you know, you think of it as a work of art. It is a work of art. There's no, for everyone, so no matter who would read this, but I'm telling you that when you think about this, that a woman with a disability wrote this, and how powerful this statement is, I maintain it's also going to be embraced by many people in the disability community, people with epilepsy or other disabilities, because it does make such a statement. It really does make such a profound statement. So um, good for you that you, good for you that you did it. Um, well, and I want to, yeah, and I want to remind everyone that they need to purchase it. Um, so, Molly, obviously you have had input in your life to enable you to do something like this. So who, who is or was your role model? You know, I don't know that I could alight. In fact, I know for certain that I couldn't alight on any one single person. I had parents who I uh, 
I have parents who I adore. They are wonderful, brilliant people. They're both novelists, and so I feel really lucky to have grown up in a household of artists and, um, you know, among people who, who valued art and valued language and believed that that was a worthwhile way to contribute to the world. Um, and I feel really lucky to have had parents who were absolutely uncompromising advocates for me and for my needs uh, and for... And for uh, creating a universe that was full of people outside of just my family who saw and valued my intelligence and who I was as a person. Um, so they have been, I think, probably in the way that, that I hope most wonderful parents are for their children, my, my biggest um, role models. But my life has been full of uh, artists and teachers, uh, both you know, throughout my childhood and adolescence and now in my adult life, who I adore and uh, and who I wouldn't exist without, and there, there are too many of them to name. Now, when, when you were in uh, high school, did you at that time also write? Did you write while you were in high school? I did. I've been writing since I was a very small child. The, the joke in my family is that because both my parents are fiction writers, my great rebellion was that I was a, a poet and not a novelist. Um, but I have wanted to be a writer since I was a very small child. Um, this has sort of always been it for me. And, and so you did write in high school. So my question is, did you have teachers in high school that realized you had a special gift that encouraged you? I did. I had wonderful teachers, um, both in my schools and then also um, sort of through various extracurricular programs. I went two summers in high school uh, to a program uh, which is called the University of Virginia Young Writers Workshop, um, the UVA Young Writers Workshop, and that is a wonderful uh, program for high school students who are interested in creative writing. And it's a summer camp, it's a residential program, and I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, it was the first place sort of outside my family that I felt valued as an artist and as, a, as an artistic young person. It taught me so much about what I wanted my community to look like and who I wanted to be as a writer in the world. And the people that I met there as a teenager are still some of my dearest friends and first readers. And so I feel really lucky that, that uh, teachers like that and communities like that have existed for me since I was young. And, you know, I, I just want to say, you know why I'm asking you that? And any teachers or parents listening, you cannot underestimate the power of a mentor or a teacher or a family member or friend saying, wow, you have this gift. This is phenomenal. Absolutely. Because, because it, my friend Karen Slaughter that I was talking about, told me about a teacher that said to her in high school, Karen, you have a special gift. You have a very special gift. And how much that impacted her. So always remember that. Remember the impact you can have on someone, a child, someone in school, that will make a difference and most likely make a difference for those of us in the world. I'm going to go to break before we close the show if you just joined us, we've been talking to Molly McCauley-Brown, poet of a book of poetry, The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, I'm Rick Harrison from Pawn Stars. I'm here to talk to you about the Epilepsy Foundation. I had bad seizures until I was a teenager. I thought I wouldn't have a chance to grow up but I dared to think differently. My epilepsy taught me to be a fighter. When I said I wanted to make a TV series about my pawn shop, people thought I was nuts. But I dared to defy the odds, and Pawn Stars was born. If you have epilepsy, dare to live your fullest potential. The Epilepsy Foundation will help you dare. Visit epilepsy.com. 
Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you have a question or comment, call in toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the show today. But more importantly, don't only buy this book. I want you to buy the book, but also tell everyone about this show. If you go to BenderConsult.com, you can hear any show. So if there's someone you want, you're thinking, oh, I wish they would have heard this, they can hear it, and it also will be archived at VoiceAmerica.com. So make sure you tell that to everyone. Uh, Molly, look what you've done. Look, I mean, here you have this book. It won a prize, not only for a first uh, book out of poetry, but also great review by the New York Times, which is, to me, such a great accomplishment. So in your young life, what are you the proudest of at this time? Oh, man. I mean, I'm enormously proud of this book. I'm grateful for the reception that it's gotten and, and all of the people who've allowed it to have a life. Um, I've wanted to, to have a book out since I was, again, a, a small child, and, and it feels like uh, a dream come true that it's, that it's here and that it's, it's doing what I hope is good work in the world. Um, but honestly, I mean, I, I hope, I think the thing that I'm proudest of is, um, you know, that that uh, my life is full of people who I I love and who I hope to whom I hope I am a good family member and a good friend and a good community member. Um, you know, I think that uh, the sort of work that we do on behalf of other people in the world, uh, whether that's through our jobs, through our art, through our interpersonal relationships, uh, is it's the thing that's going to save us all. You know, as dumb as that sounds. And so, I think I'm proudest of of the network of people uh, in my life who I know I can count on and who I know know that they can count on me. Yeah, I and I think that is absolutely fantastic that you feel like that. You know, I, I did want to ask you one question. For young people with disabilities listening to the show that are dealing with obstacles, possibly ho- horrible bullying, but really people lowering the bar, you know, telling them what they cannot do, and, and some of them possibly wanting to write, uh, what advice do you have for them? I mean, I think the advice that I have for people who want to write is is the sort of universal advice, which is that you ought to read. Um, you ought to read as, as widely and as wildly as you possibly can, and you ought to read ready to fall in love with things. And I think the advice that I have for, for young people with disabilities who are struggling um, is, is, and I don't know that it's so much advice uh, other as much as it is just to say, like, you are not alone out there in the world and you, you do have value and there are people who cannot wait to see what you will do in the world on whatever scale. Um, and and it, will, it will happen and there is a life waiting for you that is beyond high school, that is beyond bullying, that is beyond the hours that you're currently spending in a doctor's office um, waiting to, you know, to get another surgery, another procedure, another set of braces, whatever it is. Um, there's, there's a whole life coming for you. That is so true. I always tell people, do not let anyone lower the bar ever under any circumstance. And uh, as you just said, there's a whole life waiting for you. I also tell young people with disabilities who are being bullied in school, someday you'll get out of school. Absolutely. And you'll yes. look back on all this and you'll say, what? Why did I worry about what they thought? 
Absolutely. That's certainly true. People told me my whole life, like, you are going to, you know, your adult life is going to, is going to hold all of these privileges that you're, and pleasures that your childhood does not. And, and I will say that whatever has been true and untrue about the advice I was given as a child, that has certainly been the case. My life gets better with every year I live it. And being an adult with a disability, while it has its complications, is uh, inordinately preferable to being a child with a disability. Yeah. And that includes, by the way, again, if you're bullied, trust me, when I look back on my school, those that were, how, how could I describe this, cheerleader, homecoming court, whatever, all have things changed. And, and you know, honestly, I, think, I can't believe it. I can't believe I worried about anything. Uh, but you will feel the same way. And just as Molly said, as you move on in your life, you will also say, how much better it is today. So, Molly, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? I would just like to say thank you so much for having me and for, um, for listening in, all of you who are listening in. Um, it's, been a huge, it's been a huge pleasure to be here, um, and, and I hope that, that some of you do go out and, and find the book and that uh, you know, a, part of, a part of history and a part of the world opens itself up to you. Once again, how do you buy the book? Um, so a whole variety of ways. Go to your local bookseller and request it. If you've got one, if you have a Barnes & Noble, go to your Barnes & Noble and request it. Um, you can also order it offline from um, bookstores there like Powell's or from Amazon. Um, and you can even go to the website of my press, uh, which is Persea Books, uh, P-E-R-S-E-A Books.com. And they have uh, information to how you can order uh, through a distributor, especially if you want to order in bulk for a class or for a group or anything like that. And you know what? I forgot to ask you this, but for people that want to follow you, do you are you on Facebook or Twitter? I am. I am. I am on Facebook. Um, you can find me just by, by Googling my name. Um, and I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my handle is M. McCulley Brown. And um, I have a website, which I think comes up if you, if you search for me too. So, and, and that has pretty current information about what I'm working on and uh, where I'm getting readings and, and all of that stuff. So, yeah, please find me on the Internet. Molly McCauley-Brown. You just put that in and you can go to that website. Okay, that's great. Well, we end every show with a quote. Before I do that, one more time, Molly, thank you so much for taking time to be our guest. And more importantly, thank you for writing that beautiful book of poetry. Thank you so much for reading and for having me. It's been a huge pleasure. Well, we end every show with a quote. So this quote, oh, it just has to be from the author of the Americans with Disabilities Act and former Congressman Tony Quello, who said, epilepsy is just a part of who I am. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week with our guest, Jerry Buckley, the president of the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. See you then. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.